In a couple of days, we're going to be celebrating and memorializing the most significant event in all of human history. Uh, and we have the holiday of Shavuos, or Shavuot, which is celebrated on the sixth day of the month of Sivan, Hebrew month of Sivan. Today is the second day of the month of Sivan. Thus, this upcoming Sunday, which I guess is, will be May 24th, is the holiday of Shavuot. Uh, so that kicks off from, as we know, all Jewish holidays start with the, the eve of. Thus, uh, Saturday night, directly right after Shabbos, goes, there's, no, there's no buffer zone. Uh, it kicks, go, leads one and goes into the other. This, this is one of the unique times that we have in the Jewish calendar where we have what's called a three-day holiday. Essentially, if someone's observant of the laws of, of, of Shabbat and, and the holidays, they're going to have from Friday afternoon, Friday Eve, when Shabbat starts, through Monday night, when the second day of Shavuot is over, it's uninterrupted, just spiritual, Art. yes. Yeah, basically, the phone's off for how many hours is that? That would be a 72 hours plus change. You could still barbecue, you right. There are some differences in the prohibitions of, of, uh, of what you could do on Shabbat, uh, on Shabbat versus what you could do on, on, on the holidays. Example is you allowed to cook on the holidays. Um, it's Shabbat, you know, one of the things you don't do is, is to cook. But you're not allowed to make a new fire. So it's provided you have an extant fire, whether you leave your oven on or you leave your burner on or you, you have an actual flame that you leave on. Either way, you should be fine uh, to cook on the holiday. Wait, wait, wait. So what you, how are you going to do your barbecue? No, so you do your barbecue by, let's say you get a small little canister of propane. You attach that to the uh, barbecue so you don't let it run out. Uh, so you turn it on, the, the gas. You bring in extant fire. You bring an existing fire, existing fire. Drop it in there. You're good to go. You're going to need the gas. You, you can turn right. the gas, you well, turn well, the gas you, on or off. Well, you might be able to lower the gas. That's the question. But you sure can turn off the gas. You're allowed, to, you're allowed to perpetuate fires. It means have one fire light another fire, but you're not allowed to, you would not be allowed to turn off a fire. Are you going to keep the propane? Well, I guess so so they, what people do to circumvent that is they get a small canister that runs out any after a couple of hours. So that way it goes out on its own. If you really want to barbecue. So you're going to... I'm just... I'm trying to understand yes. the logistics of it. Yes. You're supposed to eat dairies anyway. Well, no, I won't. <laughs> not my house. Well, you, you're, you're no, it's <laughs> 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 a meat. Full-fledged meat. Huh? Full fledged meat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, can, yeah you, you can always barbecue vegetables around the club. Yes. Yeah, we could do some. Well, that would, would still wouldn't be dairy. There's a tradition to eat dairy. Either way, this is the holiday that we're going to be celebrating in a couple of days. Um, and we said it's the uh, the most, It's we're memorializing, it's the day that we call the day of Kabbalah Torah, accepting the Torah. Why is that? Is there a question there? I'm sorry, I missed yeah. the question. Yes, you will have to increase the right. Decreasing is a much bigger issue than increasing. So, right. Well, yeah, because you're lessening the fire. You're lowering the fire. It's less of an issue than turning it off entirely, but for sure to increase is not a problem. I remember when my dad was a smoker back when, back in the day. He quit smoking like 12 years ago, but I used to always remember like on the holidays because you love smoke, smoke on the holidays as well because oh, you're perpetuating the fire, but you're allowed to perpetuate fires. Um, one after the other. Yeah, so so that you could change smoke. Yeah, so I remember like he would like give us his cigarettes and we would go and stick it under the uh, little blech that we would have uh, with the gas 
operated fire, you know, on the stovetop and get the fire and get the, get him a cigarette. And he would do a middle of the meal. He needs a cigarette, you know. Uh, can't talk Why to me. Is, huh? uh, smoking not prohibited? Why is smoking not like, prohibited? In general. So like this. It's an act like killing with, yourself. With, well, okay, like this. Killing. Yes, it is an act of killing. And we know that there's a, there's a law in the Torah, uh, most probably from the you should guard yourself to be healthy. Uh, so the question is, what does that include? So now there's a movement now trying to reassess the status of, of cigarettes. Uh, but we know that cigarettes, no one smokes a cigarette and dies on the spot unless you smoke a cigarette in a, in a, in a gas station or something like that, <laughs> right? Smoking a cigarette is, not, is going to kill you. Chavez, you cannot start a fire. So. Oh, right. Well, that, 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 that's another issue. But, but uh, for the health consequences of cigarettes, that, that's, it's, it's slower cruel. Um, and therefore, the prohibition would not of that would not prohibit someone from smoking, according to most opinions, because that's not putting yourself in, in actual uh, uh, immediate danger. Except each individual cigarette is not. That's right. Is As opposed to illness? no, I, it means it's an accumulated. It's an yeah. accumulated. Just like we say, you know, you it's know like what? High, high cholesterol. Yeah, think about it that way. Could you have an omelet? Yeah, eggs. Yeah, because if you if you have th- a three egg omelet every day, well, you might have a high cholesterol or whatever. Can, can I eat it? Can I eat a big, juicy burger if it's kosher? Even if it's kosher, it might, it might be bad for you, you know. Right? So, so, so this prohibition is being don't put yourself in, 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 in immediate danger where you may die. So we have uh, several halakha uh, responsa that talk about, let's say, boxing. We know that there's been hundreds of people that actually died in a boxing. They were punched, they're knocked out, and, they, and they're dead. Uh, so that would be different because that there's the immediate threat of your if you, of actual loss of life. Oh, so you can't be a boxer. A Jew, uh, well, yes, it seems like a Jew. If a Jew would be a boxer, would be. I've never heard of boxing. Well, have you seen any? Over Caspi's and Caspi's. Oh, I do a couple of. Are there Jews? Yeah, Caspi's in basketball. So I I once had a teacher, a speaker at at. Yeah, true. Said, he said that you know you're Jewish when you realize or you realize what it means to be Jewish when you realize that you're more likely to own a sports team than to play on one. Yeah. That was a line. So you're probably not allowed to skydive? Like that's that? a good question. What about skydiving or something like that? Well, the question is what the numbers are. You know, we think it's dangerous, but sometimes yeah, but like our... Well, yeah, what about driving? Exactly. Driving is a lot more dangerous than flying. You know, we, we associate danger not necessarily with the of the probability of that actually killing us. You about to own the boxing thing, bro? <laughs> that's the right question. That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. Can you be yeah. the promoter? Yeah, yeah you're allowed. Uh, that's a good question. Can you profit from it? Yeah, you profit from that. That's a good question. I, we, well, but it's not, okay. I, I think I, th- I think we're defining. How about the gun manufacturers in Israel? Well, uh, I mean, self defense is yeah, self defense is self defense, right? Well, I mean. If you go in a yeah. shooting spree. But I mean, if, if you have like a Jewish text. Let's something. settle down. <laughs> We're not leaving this conversation for a while. You won't tell them about the Cyprus Jewish shooting gun. Oh, I'm sorry. Jews is funny. Jews is funny. Glocks and locks. Right? Yeah, bagels and glocks. Yeah. That's what it is, bagels and glocks. How did that Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying Daniel should not have a gun, but. I don't know anyone who's advertising on the front lawn. Owner is unarmed. <laughs> you know, you know, our neighborhood has had, had an uptick in um, in crime, unfortunately. 
so we had a we had a uh, one of the synagogues, local synagogues. We had a CHL licensing course, and we had a lot of people willing to sign up. Like I said, there's an interest for it. Wow. Either way, so uh, so that would be smoking so would be a lot. I did. Yeah. <laughs> you did. Or actually, the CHL. I'm still waiting for the show in the mail. Well, I keep I, waiting. I'm still waiting for the show. Oh yeah, it says like 60 days. It's... Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I have a Uzi in my car. <laughs> <laughs> that is actually legal. Is it a Uzi? Yeah, full size only, gun. Only, infe- only infection. Full size we're, gun. We're not, we're not from here. But this is an automatic. This is a. This is a military. Crazy. I mean, this is an automatic. Yeah, you don't have to register. Like a car. That's the, the only thing that's an automatic weapon is registration. When you apply for a license, I thought an, not, it's a fully not a automatic weapon, like, you were not. I thought there was restrictions, like the AK-47. Now we're gonna have uh, in January. Then we're gonna have open carry. You just have to have a gun. You have to apply for January. January. It's September. Sorry, September. September, September maybe January. Either way, there's to be open carry now. So, and these Texans will actually open carry. Yeah. Mm. No. It's Texas. Everyone has a gun anyway. Yeah, everybody has a gun. Because if I got into the habit or whatever. No, because you don't want to start shooting. If someone is actually going to rob the bank that you are attending. Yeah, kill the guy with the gun first. Gonna, exactly. Yeah, obviously you'll have a redneck joke. Whatever, so we'll make sure. Shoot the big gun. gun <laughs> for the most one. I know several yeah, most people will still carry I mean, concealed. I know several of those. Either way, so this is the holiday. So, so what are we celebrating exactly over the holiday? We have... Uh, so we know that um, it's called the holiday of receiving the Torah. Uh, now, what actually happened on the sixth day of Sivan uh, back in the day, in the year 1312, before the Common Era? Uh, so we're going uh, about 1327 uh, years ago. Um, what, what, what did we memorialize? What did we receive? We received the scrolls? What did we get? <laughs> right, so... Uh, Huh? Well, Moses didn't come down yet. Moses went up. So, 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 two significant events really happened uh, on this day. Fell uh, asleep. Well, that was the eve of, and that's why we stay up that night. Okay, so you're, with, you're talking about the day after. But the, that day, that day. So the, the the night we we were sleeping, and then we uh, and then woke we up. woke up, and uh, and we had this tremendous. So two things happened. Number one. We achieved prophecy, as it says very clear, clearly in several places, um, most notably where it points it out the uniqueness uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, but also in Exodus where it describes a story, in Deuteronomy where it repeats the story, makes it very clear that the entire nation was there and they heard the sound, the voice of God. They saw these incredible uh, visions, right? It was an entire nation of 603,550 adult males at the age of 20. And 60. So this is an enormous, enormous amount of people. And this is the one event that we use as the foundation of our faith, really. Torah makes it clear, says, no one else has had this experience. This is, this, this, is, this is the vision, this is the revelation that kicked off our religion. And yes, of course, part of that was receiving commandments. We know ten of them on the mountain. Of course, and that was the beginning, or at least the acceleration, 
of our receiving the Torah. And of course, the Ten Commandments, they encapsulate the entire Torah. They're a microcosm of the entire Torah. And in fact, even more precisely, we know that the Talmud says, very clearly, uh, Rashi brings it down, that, uh, that the first two commandments the Jewish people heard from God themselves. Everyone familiar with that? Yeah, they jumped out. Yeah, and the, and the Talmud says that they died. Mm-hmm. And how do we know the Talmud says that? Because if they asked Moses to go up. And where and where is it? Going. Where is it in the Talmud? That's absolutely right. Shabbat 58, 88. We'll get to it. 87 no? well, is where it starts talking about it. Um, and it says that, that, that they died, it had to be resuscitated. This was a tremendous experience. The first two commandments they heard from God. Now, what, what's so special about the first two and not the first one? If they stopped after two, why wouldn't they stop after one? And if they were able to hear two, why didn't they, they hear three or four? Like, why is two the arbitrary number? Because just like we said, that the Ten Commandments are a microcosm of the entire Torah, the first two commandments are also a microcosm of the entire Torah. The first commandment is believe in God. second commandment is don't believe in anything else. Essentially, that covers everything. And we say that when you do a positive mitzvah, right, it's a reaffirmation of commandment number one. Right? You're doing something because God instructed you to do it. When you don't do it a sin... When you withhold from doing a sin, you're reaffirming mitzvah, commandment number two. Don't do things that are contrary to that. Thus, we could say that the 248 positive mitzvahs are encapsulated with, I am the Lord your God. The 365 negative commandments are encapsulated in, don't have any other foreign gods before me. And thus, essentially, the Jewish people had to hear the entire Torah, at least the core of the entire Torah, from God himself. That's the first two, they heard from God himself. The rest of them, even though they are also microcosm of the entire Torah, and many, many commentators point this out, and they do all the mathematics and how it works and what it corresponds to and everything, uh, but that uh, these two are the core positive and negative of this relationship. How do you know they heard only the first two? I'm not sure if it's, if it's in the Talmud or if it's, uh, if it's clear in the verses, or Rashi brings it down, so it's sourced somewhere. I thought they heard all of the commandments. I think the Ramban says that they heard all of them, or it's not clear what, what, what they, they did or what they didn't hear. Right? Go back to the sources and tell you. Okay. Well, ben, what does it say? That one. Yeah. for us. See, he just quoted the Talmud verbatim. Close enough. Yeah. But <laughs> so, what was the answer? So, uh. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Either way, so that's. So, these are the, these are the two major events. Uh, and we, we call it the, begin, the receiving of the Torah because. Is it easier if I face. If I face and. Uh, we call it the, the the receiving of the Torah because that's where we started. Essentially, we actually start. If you want to actually split hairs, we started receiving the Torah earlier uh, because they received the f- three mitzvahs were received even before, uh, even before the the experience at Sinai. But either way, this is where they settled down and they started. And they were actually by Mount Sinai for an entire year, actually ten days short of a year. 
Um, and that's where they, they had, of course, we know that the golden calf was there and that aftermath, but that's where they built the tabernacle. So we got all the mitzvahs uh, for an entire year. They were there studying at the foot of the mountain. So this is in a place, uh, this is a location which is forever uh, uh, connected to the idea of, 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 of Torah study. Uh, and we know that the Torah study for us Jews is something very important, very critical, very f- fundamental uh, to our religion. Uh, we it's 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 been made very clear that this is where we became a nation. You know, this it's not it's not a coincidence that the element that we have of faith is linked to the element of Torah. Like this is so significant, and these two things were connected. It could have been just this experience at Mount Sinai and just the prophecy and fantastic, but for us, we know that this is connected to the Torah and to the study of the Torah and the receiving of the Torah because the Torah is what's going to make us a nation. And throughout the generations, we have historical accounts from even non-Jewish sources that talk about the dedication the Jewish people had to Torah study. Uh, it's, we're talking about thousands of years. It's not a new thing. You go to Israel t- today and you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of people that to... To, to, to large or even small or some band of uh, extent dedicate their lives to Torah study. I thought we in Shalom Cyprus invented the Torah alphabet. <laughs> Didn't we? Yeah, well, they took, they took your... Uh, <laughs> took our idea. Well, Ben's, Ben's mom was a fan of the Torah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, uh, uh, so, so, so this is something that we, we've had now for 3,300 years. And it has been the core of the nation. I, I like to say this as an example of, of kind of the Jewish attitude that we've had uh, to Torah study. That Maimonides, as we all know, was the rational one. He was the one rabbi that got it. You know, that's like the philosophers love him because he was the one rabbi who really understood life. You know, it wasn't just one of those crazy. And he says, and he makes it very clear, he says, someone who studies Torah and expects others to support him, he's making a mistake and he's forget all his Torah. That's what he says. And you have to, have, to have to study Torah, of course, but you also have to spend time making a living. He's a fool. Huh? He, says he's he says a lot of things. He was, very, <laughs> he was very, very strongly against it. If you want to know where the source is, in the Perkevot, in the chapters of the Fathers, where it says, don't make it a kardum lachorbo, don't take the Torah and make it into a shovel to dig with, nor a crown to gain glory from. So there he goes on a diatribe against people that say that we should study Torah and let everyone else take care of me. Right. Let my Torah study, let, let, let that do the work for me. Because then essentially you're, you're torn, turning the Torah into, into, a, into a pick or an axe or a hoe that's going to dig for you. And a crown to gain glory from. You guys not like that story of the fisherman and the other one? Which story? Which fisherman? You know where the one fishes and the other one studies Torah? They make that little deal. I don't know which story you're talking about, but he does bring a lot of other stories. Really? This is pretty much the story of Israel. What? Two fish had an agreement? Had an agreement? I don't know. <laughs> are, you talking, are you talking about the one where you're going to catch a fish or you can find the one fish? I forgot what the name was. I don't know. No, no, no. With the guy who bought the fish and had the, know, uh, the diamond in no, it? the fisherman story. Like the fisherman drowning? No, not the fisherman drowning. No, there's one, let me tell, one, let me one tell what story the, he does bring. One people, uh, one person was Fisherman, he, he did all the, you know, all the work, uh-huh. right? And the other guys did all the study. Now they made an agreement. agreement. It's called the Sachar Zvulan agreement, where Yisachar Zvulan, they uh, 
two brothers. One of them is dedicated to Torah study. One of them is the business I mogul. Think, yeah, I don't think they were cousins. Well, well, that was the ideal, but unfortunately, it worked out like that. <laughs> uh, so, what does he say? How should one allocate uh, the day? You know, what, what do you think the proper allocation is according to Maimonides of Torah study versus work? What do you think, Jeff? What do you think? That's a fair breakdown. <laughs> um, honestly, you're, um, what makes sense to us? <laughs> but what do you think? Oh, you're here. So these are right. What would Maimonides write? Like, well, what's a fair breakdown? Explanation: so How much should someone work towards a livelihood, towards providing for the family, and how much should someone spend studying Torah? What do you think? And who wants to throw out? Remember, Ben, you know the number. What's the last day? Yeah, a waking part is fifty fifty. Your waking hour. Yeah, so he says like this. He says you have twelve hours to sleep and take care of all your recreations. Oh, well, okay. Yes, and then the other everything, everything. No, twelve hours to sleep and to eat and to daven and to everything. Okay. And to deal with your kids and do bedtime. You and can't lump the davening in Torah study. What? You can't lump the davening. No, 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 no. We're talking about Torah study, like not not prayer or liturgy <laughs> okay. like that. And there's no twelve hours left. He says you should spend nine hours studying and three hours. <laughs> Jeff's face. Well, when you're a doctor, I guess you can do that. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. How when many hours studying? Right? Nine hours studying. Yeah. And three hours working. My mind is What's not... you? And <laughs> what do you call it? The paramedic thing. Oh, okay. so nine days a month? Yeah, he only works nine days a month. I so, my mind is, is... And he, he's writing <laughs> this as law. He's saying, like, this is a very fair and ideal background for everyone. Uh, you know, a breakdown of... of and to us, it's mind-boggling, of course. Like you said, like nine hours of study a year if only most guess, Jews I, would do. I go crazy after eight hours of work, so I can imagine nine hours of study. Well, maybe, maybe studying is more pleasurable than work. It is. Yeah, I've, been, I've, been, I've had enough school studying in Torah. Yeah, but yeah, you, you're studying Torah. Torah is entirely different. Well, either way, I think this kind of underscores the dedication or just the attitude that Jewish people have had towards study. Towards study. This is just one example. So how do we should come up with that number? We should just post it. Good question. Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, but we, there's some great stories of, of the heroism of the great rabbis and how much they dedicated their lives towards Torah study and how much they... Like Rabbi Akiva, that's the one story of the fish, right? The fish. Rabbi Akiva said if, uh, during the Hadrianic persecutions... Uh, trying to find it. No, it he said, right. Rabbi Kiva said that if you take a fish out of water, the fish is going to die. If you take a Jew out of Torah, the Jew's going to die. So he says, I don't care that the, uh, I don't care that the uh, Romans, that the Hadrian says that if, if you study Torah, we're going to execute you. I don't care. Well, we're going to die regardless, right? So that, you know, that, that's one example. We know that he was killed for teaching Torah. Another great example of kind of the attitude that the great sages have had towards Torah. We know the story of, of Rava. So there's this great uh, rabbi in the Talmud. You find him in every every two pages of the Talmud. You find Rav at least once, and he's teaching, he's lecturing, and there's this rusty knife on his table, and he doesn't realize it, and he's he's smashing his head and hands on the table. I guess it wasn't Shabbat, right? And he's lecturing, and he doesn't realize that his hands just bleeding. You know, Talmud says this this crazy story. You know this, you know, but because like he he was so uh, just taken by the Torah study, that he even notice it. He noticed it later, and you know, and I guess he tended to it later. <laughs> no, it just, but, then, but this, 
the fact someone has nerve endings, it means that if, if your mind's not there, it doesn't hurt yeah. you. Just like if you would, I don't know. So if this, so- this story, the, the, the rabbi, uh, European rabbi, he passed away, I think, one year or two years ago. Yeah. Uh, Sephardic. And he was well known for studying all the waking hours. Rabbi Vadi Yosef? Yes. He, he passed away. Yeah, a couple, it was in 12 or 13 yeah. years. And there's this story that he was, uh, a, a woman had a question about the get. So he was working on it, and he needed to find this book on his uh, shelf. So he takes the stairs, he goes up, and then he falls, he breaks his hip, he cannot get up. So he calls 911, and, or it's, it's Europe, so I don't know if it's 911. No, but he lived, he was, but he no was, Rabbi lived, he lived in Israel, but he was a rabbi. He was the rabbi of Cairo. So either way, he broke he was in the He was his hips, he couldn't move. And while he was there, waiting in pain, uh, he found the book that he needed on the bottom of the shelf. So he took it and he started reading until the ambulance came and he took from there. And mm-hmm. he said, after why did you do that? Well, because the woman that needed this information, she may not get the get if she doesn't have the information on time. Yeah. With a broken hip and everything. Yeah, but they, someone like Rabbi Yosef, like, this is a man who's, say he was the chief rabbi of Israel as well from 1963 to 1970, because Israel chief rabbis, in are in 10-year uh, in increments, 10-year terms. In fact, his son is the current Sephardic chief rabbi. All of his sons are like massive, massive scholars. And he wrote, I, I don't know how, 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 how many, but he must have written 100 books like on scholarship. But Rabbi Yosef, he knew verbatim by heart Thousands of books, like it's just insane. Like it's just he knew it word for word. You're reading your word for word verbatim. Like this, this dedication that people have. Obviously, you have to. You probably helped if you're a genius to begin with, uh, with a photograph of memory. That would probably help. He was almost like Ben. <laughs> so, uh, so, 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 so that's that. So, what I wanted to do now. So, like, you know, this is the event that Kitch started our dedication to Torah study. Uh, so what I wanted to do is to kind of maybe go through some of the sources that talk about kind of the importance and why we're doing it, you know. And I feel like it's important for us to realize that something that our nation has been so dedicated towards for so many millennia, there's got to be a reason why, you know. It's not possible that the smartest people in the world, or arguably, you know, of the smartest people in the world, the Jews, would waste so much precious time for thousands of years studying ancient documents. It doesn't that that, that doesn't make sense. Right? It shouldn't make sense, right? If, if you see a phenomenon that's so widespread that some of the most intelligent people in the world are dedicating so much time <coughs> towards what we maybe at first glance would consider to be really archaic and irrelevant texts, I think it begs the question: What's the deal? Why the dedication? What what do they find in the pages and the seas of the Talmud that's so life changing that makes them want to dedicate their lives towards it? So when I prepared this presentation, I I I I, I had a very ambitious goal. My goal was to find ten different different distinct each one distinct reasons why. People study Torah, not 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 people observing the mitzvahs, but just actual study of Torah. And I had seven. I was trying to figure out if I could push it to ten. I ended up with seventeen. I have seventeen different and distinct reasons why people why people do it, and why we find you know vehidita bo yom v'alayla. 
as a verse in scripture to study Torah day and night. Like, why? Why should we study Torah day and night? Why, why is it so important? And of course, we're not trying to say that this is the only thing that's, the most, that that's important. As we mentioned, when we, I spoke, I think it was last time or the time before, that the Talmud also says that if someone studies Torah but doesn't do kindness, well, they don't believe in God. So someone who doesn't do anything but Torah study, and the Torah study makes them into someone who's more arrogant, right? Well, then maybe that's a bad thing, of course. And we have the Talmud, of course, famous Talmud that says that uh, some people, the Torah becomes Samachayim, and some becomes, thank you, which means some for some people it's the elixir of life, Torah study, and for some people it's poison or the elixir of death, right? Because, yes, there is, there is a certain measure of danger, but it's something so powerful and so transcendental and so transformative for people in so many different ways. And as I want to go through some of the sources that, that talk about what, what happens when someone studies Torah and how does that affect their lives and maybe for us to gain some insight as to why the obsession uh, and to also maybe hopefully present the upcoming holiday in a, in a, in a clear light. Like, what's the celebration? We're celebrating, receiving instructions of God, of Torah that we study. Okay, well, how is that? How can we make that as meaningful as possible? What do y'all say? Should we start? Reason number one? Yeah. I'm going to start with the easy one. What's the easiest reason why we said this? Go ahead. Uh, well, that's, that's uh, to understand, John, maybe. Let's, let's, let's start with the simplest, simplest reason. I, I think probably the simplest reason. Um, and that's probably because it's a mitzvah. You know, there's hundreds of mitzvahs in the Torah. We, you know, we shake a lulav and we eat matzah and we, we, we light the Shabbat candles and, you know, we put a mezuz in the door. We do a lot of things. And we study Torah because that's one of the mitzvahs in the Torah. Oh, but that's a circular argument. Parenting. Well, yes. Okay. So, but if, I, if I, I ask someone, why are you studying Torah? I think a very fair answer could be this is a great mitzvah. In fact, it's a mitzvah. We oh, say yeah, a that's, that's it. I, I study Torah because it says in the Torah. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm just trying. Means if yes, of course, if this was a logical argument to try to say why someone <laughs> should study Torah, that would that alone would not be enough. Of course, that makes sense. Um, but but um, we're saying when someone realizes the Torah is true. And the Torahs, and and they want to understand the various, all the different elements of why they study Torah. That would be, I think, one of the well, just same reason why you have mezuzahs in your door. You have mezuzahs in your door. Mm-hmm. Why? It's, it's a circular Torah. argument. So what? Who cares about the Torah? I don't know why. It's a okay, it's not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but prove it to me. That that's the same question you're ask, asking me. Essentially, I'm not. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to prove anything. Right, I'm just yeah, saying yeah. that that's why. Now, interestingly, and I, I feel like Ben kind of gave me a glance. Uh, we know, uh, we don't know, but the, to- the mitzvah of studying Torah is actually not explicit in the Torah. Right? That verse that I quoted, I said it's in Scripture. I didn't say it's in the Torah because it's actually the eighth verse after you finish the Torah, which to me indicates that the Torah wanted to say it so much, but for whatever reason couldn't say it in the actual five books of Moses, so right away at the onset of the book of Joshua, it says we could study Torah day and night. But it's hinted many, many times in the Torah itself. And we know that some of the commentators, some of those who organized the, the list of Sitzvotim, bring it as one of the Sitzvotim mitzvahs. 
And the Talmud says the question, why the greatest mitzvah of all? Why is that not plastered on every page? Every page is a mitzvah to do this, to do that, and the other, and then study Torah. Repeat it 10 times. We're told, not to speak Lashon Torah, 22 times. We're told to go in the ways of God 8 times. Let it say, study Torah 50 times, or at least once, clearly. <laughs> That's the Talmud's question. The answer Talmud says, I think, is, is mind-blowing. It says, well, it's, it's a, it is obvious, of course, uh, but don't murder is, I think, also obvious. Maybe it wasn't at the time, or right? But a lot of things are obvious that are spelled out, right? Maybe. Maybe it is obvious. We know some things in the Torah, it's just self-understood. You're supposed to understand in your own. I think it's a good argument. But what does the Thomas says? Thomas says, it's crude, it's crass, it's unbefitting for the Torah itself to demand that people study it. And here's an example. It says, just like a couple, husband and wife, it's not befitting for, for them to demand Physical intimacy. That's not, there's, a, there's a way to do it. You, you could drop hints. That's fine. That's encouraged. Not straight up. You know, that's, 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 <laughs> that, that, in fact, in fact it's, in, it's, it's actually a law. One of the, the laws of marital intimacy, it talks about how, how to go about the, um, that. So uh, that's what it says. Okay. Now, what is this telling us? Our relationship with Torah study is the similar to our relationship that we have with our spouses. The most intimate of relationships. That's what it's saying, right? That's that's the argument. And we find that again and again. We find, uh, for example, we know that uh, man was all alone and God says, let me make you a woman. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper. So perhaps we could say that, you know, when the Torah crafted man and a, and a spouse, that's a helper. Maybe the Torah is, man alone is also. A man alone is not good for man to be alone. What happens when you have man dropped into the world without any instruction? What happens? What do they look like? You know what they look like? Savages. <laughs> no, in, 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 you know, if you if you were to dial back the clock in a time where morality wasn't as ubiquitous as it is today, people were savages. Like murder was commonplace, right? Rape was no big deal. Go read about what was life was like uh, thousands of years ago, even hundreds of years ago. That's what man looks like without being harnessed. Man's no more than an animal without the Torah. The to- this is the lesson, right? Man needs helpers for man to be great in life or even to be good in life. Right? They're going to need to have instruction. Just like it's not good for a man to be alone without a wife, it's not good for a man to be alone without Torah. If you have no form of instruction, if you don't have guidance in how to maximize your life, how to live, how to, how to live like a human, not like an animal, you may, in fact, end up like an animal, unfortunately. And... You know what? What does the Torah say? Like the Torah says, be a human. More than anything else, I would say the Torah is telling us to not act like an animal. Okay, that's the one of the overriding uh, lessons of, of the Torah. An animal cannot 
say no to its instincts. It can't do it. Humans, some humans can't do that either. The Torah is again and again and again, rehashing this point again and again, say no to your instincts. You want something? Okay, no, you can't because it's either it's not kosher, because it's Shabbat, or because of whatever. We're constantly being told you're a human. Okay? You don't just do what you want. You are, you are grounded. You know, and to me, like this, 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 this is an eye-opening way to, to just look at what Torah is. You know? And I think we can make the argument, I think this, this is a true argument, that a lot of the Torah lessons, thankfully, became widespread across entire societies. I think today, you go most places in the world, you know, you won't encounter the same people that Abraham, Abraham encountered, you know, 3,800 years ago. We, we see Abraham had to tell Pharaoh that his wife was his sister, because otherwise they would have killed him. That's an insight into what life is like in a time where Torah and Torah lessons and the Ten Commandments, if you will, were not universally accepted. I think today it's pretty much universally accepted. Pretty much. Not, not all, not entirely, but the, the basic idea is that we taught the world. We taught the world. This is us. We're the first ones. We're way ahead of the curve. Right? We taught the world these lessons. Right? That we could see today how it has uh, ensured that humanities, that, or the humans, behave like humans. So I think it's, it's a good point to realize that, yes, the Torah helped us course become humans but it really helped it really helped the entire world and we talk about Tuhulam and fixing the world and how the Torah is the recipe for fixing the world I think we could say that the world is much more fixed than it was thousands of years ago either way that's a way to that, that, that that's the uh, that's uh, I think number one we'll start with number one it's I think probably a simple one we stu- we do we study it we study it because of of of, uh, of, of Torah study but also that kind of opens up an insight as to what the relationship that we have with Torah, what will be, what would humans, what would the Jewish people be like without it? And that, and that kind of is a good way for us to really appreciate uh, some of, uh, you know, some, you know, some of the insights and the themes of the holidays. Okay, so if that's number one, it's a mitzvah. What's number two? It's fantastic. the content matter of the Torah? What's the, what's the, what does the word Torah mean? Instructions. Right? So if you want to have the instructions, you want to, right, you want to read the book, you want to read the manual. And I like to say that um, when you open up a toaster oven, it has a big sign, warning, make sure you read the instructions because death or loss of limb can occur with, uh, if you operate it in the wrong way. Toaster? Toaster oven, yeah. Like, <laughs> I I actually saw yesterday. We have this uh, this bread maker. Fantastic little contraption. You just put in the recipe the night of, and then you wake up in the morning. This fresh, like an amazing homemade bread. But then, but like it, one of the pieces came out, and I looked inside of it, like one of the like the cover of the flap. I looked inside and see like a thousand wires. It looks like one of those movie scenes where you have to cut one of the wires, or else the bomb's gonna blow up. So I was looking like. Or the Id Nobel Prize ones? The IG ones? IG Nobel Prize? Where the guy was the silliest. Uh, anyway. Um, so, so. So that's. 
And I was thinking, like, how complex is this machine? That look, look how many wires it has in it. Uh, now, if we're given, this is an argument that's been made many times, the more sophisticated the machinery gets, the bigger the instruction manual. So if you have, let's say, a little Bluetooth speaker set, uh, then it's maybe two, two or three pages or, like, a little flip card. But if you get delivered a brand new... Boeing seven eight seven Dreamliner, you know I'm sure it comes. I'm sure it uh, from Amazon. Right. No, if you, if you bought <laughs> two day shipping, uh, if you bought that, I'm sure it comes with an engineer and a library of of of, of instructions. It's typically a room. A room, yeah. I, that's what I would assume, right? Uh, yes, I don't I know. Friends who work in Boeing. Huh? Yes, I have friends who work in Boeing. Yeah. So I'm sure I'm sure that that's true. No, I'm sure they deliver deliver them with instructions on how to operate them. I'm sure, like the little Embraer's, uh, you know, R seven CR seventeens, those little little planes that fly to Canada. They, you know, that's more of a booklet. <laughs> but the, the big, the the Airbuses, the A three A three like these are sophisticated. I'm sure if you go to the, I don't know, the the. Uh, but they, they're always sized, though. No, but it's complexity. Yeah, complexity. That's that's the point. Right. I mean, my microchip manually. You're right, but I would say if you, if you were to go onto like the International Space Station, I can imagine that the manual and the team of engineers that are there making sure everything works well, it, you know, is enormous. So by that argument, we say that there's the world, and the world is infinitely more complex than any of those things. And the Torah is the manual. The Torah is the manual, and the mitzvahs are the instructions. And what makes the to- the what makes the world even more complex or more dangerous is the fact that the world looks, at least at plain sight, as being not so complex. Like a lot of people live their lives and say, like, this is just a wonderful place to hang out for 70, 80 years. Uh, but in reality, the Torah tells us that no, we're here on a mission. And we're here because we have a soul, we have the body, and we have opportunities to become great, and we have uh, uh, the potential of regression and becoming terrible. That's what life really is. It's this, it's this greatest game of chess. No, not chess, but it's this greatest game of uh, of of opportunity uh, and consequences and responsibilities that could ever be imagined. But unfortunately, some people just imagine that this is just a, a nice arena to survive uh, and have fun for 80, 90 years. So that's why you have the Torah. And the Torah gives us instructions. And you know what? When we read that, like when we look at the Torah, we think of like, oh gosh, we have to break our teeth now in Hebrew. Like, how do you read this? There's no there's no Nakudot, there's no dots in the in the Torah scroll. Why would they make it without dots? Like that, that's what we think. But in reality, like this changes everything. Like to us now, we're not just studying some laborious, arduous, ancient, archaic, arcane uh, uh, book of instruction. Rather, we are getting, in, you know, we are being taught by the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, how to maximize our life, how to accomplish the most, how to have the highest levels of pleasure, pleasures possible, how to actually utilize the world for all it is designed to be. I think it to radically change our opinion. Like, you know, and, and that's and that's what we do. This is the holiday that we celebrate that. Like imagine 
you had I think of a bigger example, but imagine, I don't know, you, you got the Xbox, right? On uh, Hanukkah, you get to get the Xbox, but you don't know how to plug it in, or you don't know how to turn it on, or you don't know how to hook it up to the screen, or you don't know how to how to work it, and you you don't know how to hook up the multiplayer game, and then someone comes in and says, oh, let me teach you how to do it, and he shows you how to do it. Like, that like that would just be incredible joy. And of course, an Xbox, that's a lot of fun for kid that had one adult <laughs> that has it <laughs> right uh, but if you were just magnify that to cosmic scale that's what the tour was it was unlocking this tremendous potency of life of existence of the world of humanity that's what it was and it's a, that's why it's the day of great, greatest celebration because this is the day where we started gaining some of the codes and some of the instructions. So yes, on one end, we think of instructions as being, oh, you got to do that, have to do that. But on the other hand, there's the other flip side where we look at these instructions as being each a golden opportunity. This is more fun. This is more pleasure. This is maximization of life. And I would say that that's a very good argument for, for reason number two, I said the Torah. That's to get the instruction. So it's a mitzvah, of course. It's a very important mitzvah, very central mitzvah, a mitzvah that's going to bring us to other mitzvahs, uh, no, no doubt. It's instructions, and these instructions have to be cherished because not, it's not just instructions that are orders from the dictator, but they're instructions for us how to make our lives better. Uh, and... Number three, I'll say, and I'll start with the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin. The Talmud says that there's three mitzvahs that are scenarios. Lo haya, lo atid lihiyot. Never happened, never will happen. What are these three mitzvahs? The wayward and rebellious son of Deuteronomy. The, the ir nidachat. The, the city that this entire city has adopted idolatry. And lastly is saras on the house. Leprosy, the spiritual leprosy that where splotches start appearing on your home. I don't have voices in my ear. These are three things that will never happen again. No, never happened, never will happen. Never has happened, never will happen. Exactly. So like the city of Saddam. Well, Sodom wasn't a Jewish city, and Irnidachas, a way where a city that, that has entirely adopted idolatry, can only be a Jewish city. So it has to be a Jewish city. Yeah, it never happened, never will happen. So, so what, what were the three things? The city? The wayward rebellious son. Wait, what does that mean? Wayward rebellious son, it means, a, a, it means a, a 13-year-old boy between the age of 13 and 13 to 3 months who steals money from his parents and uses that to buy meat and wine and he eats the meat that's uncooked, no, not fully cooked, and drinks the Italian wine in bad company in one gulp and has someone, witnesses that see him and warn him not to do it. And the parents choose to bring him to court. They give him lashes. The kid does it again. They bring him to court and they execute him. That's a shortened version of the requirements, but for but this is an example. Statistically, but this is but remember this is also both parents have to opt to bring him in voluntarily, and Tom says well both parents have to be the same height and they have to have the same voice and they have to 
have to look the same. It's it's a it's it's not it's clearly you read the instructions. It's it's not designed to uh, to happen right clearly. Uh, when Saras appears in the house. In the Parsha. I said all three of them were in the Parsha. They're all three. Of, they, didn't they never happen, but the Torah tells us what to do when they do happen. Even though they never happen. What's the obvious question? Drumroll, please. Why, why does it tell us what to do when a situation happens? And then we know that the situation actually never happened, never will happen. Wait, so Saras was never on someone? Right, it was on the garments, on the garments, on the on the on on their person, but not in the house. So the Talmud says, "Lama nichtav." Why was it written? We should have six hundred and ten mitzvahs. Shorten it. Go easy on us. Let's have six hundred and (laughs) ten. Why do we need six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs? Just give give us six hundred and ten, and that should be enough. Says the Talmud, "Derosh vekabel sechar." Study. And receive reward. On face value, this means that, listen, the Torah guarantees reward for every good deed, including Torah study, including any mitzvah that you do. So the Torah says, you know what, this is something that never happened, but study it. I'll just give you some extra stuff, extra credit. That's what it seems like. Uh, But on a deeper level, we find tremendous lessons that are applicable to our lives. Uh, for example, we know that the Way of Rebellious Son, that is an entire book on pedagogy, on parenting, where it goes into the whole relationship of the children and the parents and, and what causes kids to listen and what causes kids not to listen. And, and I know we, I have a friend who wrote an entire article taking these laws and deriving important lessons in parenting from it. And, and, that, and that's reward. Because, yes, it's masked as instructions, but we know that these events never actually happened. But the lesson is still there. Similarly, I have a, a, a class online, if you want to listen to it, where I talk about the, about the splotches on the, ho- on, on the house uh, and... What the lesson is, when in fact, there we find Rashi very famously tells us that the reason why there were splotches on the house was because when the Jews came into Israel and they had, uh, they had, there were incumbents there. There was, we know that there was a war. And there were, some guy would move into his new house and the previous owner, they heard the Jews, Jews were coming, so they hid the money and the gold and the silver and the jewels and the diamonds behind, behind the stones. So, so the Torah says, you know what? I'll create, God say, God says, so to speak, I'll make splotches in your house. And then you have to pull away the stones. And then you'll discover the gold. So that's the, and that, that's a, an absolute bizarre. That's what, it, that's what it sounds like. But then we actually read the Talmud, this has never happened. So you have this, this insane, I guess, oxymoronic reality where... The Torah tells us that this, what to do when this happens, why it happens, because there's gold in there, but actually, actually never happened. So it never did happen. Never did happen. So why would you tell me why something happens and then tell me, oh, actually, it never happens? 
so there's there's room. And I gave a, a, almost an entire class of this of this idea because yes, there's also a lot of lessons that we can learn out of this. Maybe or maybe the lesson is that when bad things happen to you, oh gosh, I have to pull down my house. It's actually for a good reason because there's gold and silver behind it. Maybe, maybe that's the lesson. And maybe that's the deriving it, studying it, and gaining reward. You know, when we, we find uh, many, there's hundreds of mitzvahs that we study about that we don't actually fulfill. Uh, there's entire sections, orders of Mishnah that are not applicable to us at all. And I know I have a lot of friends that study the laws of sacrifices and all the details and all the different kinds of sacrifices, tens of different kinds of sacrifices and all, and how it's done and what the what the Kohen Gadol does in Yom Kippur and all these laws that will never apply to them because even if, even if the temples were built tomorrow, they're not a Kohen. So why are they studying that? And we study the laws of agriculture in Israel that don't apply to us and we study the laws that apply to women only. We study the laws that apply... Uh, to Levi's only, we, did, we studied the laws that apply to kings only, we studied the laws of, of, of jurisprudence that only apply when the temple is, 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 is existing and the Sanhedrin is in session. We study all these things that are not relevant to us. So it's not just about instructions. Yes, there's the mitzvah. But if it's all about instructions that are practical and applicable to us in our day-to-day life, well, then you wouldn't do that. Perhaps... There's an entire other element where there's studying it for the sake of reward. Now, what that reward can mean can mean the spiritual reward or it can mean practical reward. Where even if you study something which is not relevant to you, the underlying lessons can potentially be relevant to you. Or, like we have the, the Talmud says, that if we, uh, if someone studies the laws of an Ola, Ola is a kind of sacrifice. If you study the laws of the Ola, the Talmud says is that it's as if you fulfilled the mitzvah of an Ola. Thus, it's possible that via actual study, we can fulfill mitzvahs, or at least spiritually, that we couldn't have done otherwise. But either way, there's this idea of, of reward, of, of benefit, benefiting from the actual study. And we'll find a little bit later, just we'll break down some of the different benefits. So you, know, you mentioned you get close to God, but that's a benefit. You're rewarded because you have an outcome, a positive outcome that you gain from the Torah study. That's that the you know that tangible, you know it's possible that when you study Torah you get finer uh, characteristics, you know you find amidos as we say character traits, uh, and it's possible when you study Torah you become sharper, more intelligent. Actually, it's not possible. It's most most assuredly you would you would sharpen your mind, and in fact that leads us to number four. So now we're going to unbundle some of the benefits of of Torah study. Uh, and that is to sharpen the mind and hone and empower the soul. We find the question that we're asking tonight was asked before. We find that in the introduction to Sefer HaChinuch, which literally, mean, li- literally means the book of education, which is a book of apocryphal authorship written in the 13th century, in, in the introduction, the author, whose name was Rabbi Aaron Levy, asked, was it Aaron Levy? You Levy also? No, so you couldn't have been the author. Um, he asked the question, why do we have such a precious Torah, such, a, such an exhaustive Torah? Why, why, you know, why do we have Torah? Basically, same question that, that we asked today. And he says something fascinating. He says, the Almighty created animals. Animals are instinctual. Animals respond to instinct. 
They're 100% body, 100% material. They cannot overcome that. They cannot do anything above what they're pre-programmed to do. As we mentioned earlier, they cannot say no to their, to, to their desires. That's one, that's one class of creation. God created angels. Angels are 100% intellect. They cannot choose to be anything else. They cannot choose to be anything but 100% rational. They cannot be influenced by a body or bodily forces. They cannot, an, an angel cannot have a, 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 a temptation. It's not possible. They don't, have, they don't have the same physiological reality that would enable a, a temptation. And then there's this third creature. That's humans. And we're half animal, half angel. We have the instinct. We are pre-programmed. We are driven by our physical. Yet we have the potential of the soul. The soul is compared to the angels. And we have this ability to overcome it. Thus, we're in constant conflict. Not to be confused with constant contact. Something else. We're constantly in conflict because we have these two sparring, warring, divergent, opposite, polar polar realities that exist within us at all times. And we're being pulled this way and that way, and we have to thus free free choice, etc. Now, if we were to just project into the future, we take a... uh, Look at what the trajectory of man is. Man starts off life as being almost entirely body. Almost entirely. A small child cannot, is like an, essentially like an animal. Some kids actually eat like animals, but, but essentially because they cannot do anything that's against their instinct. If their instinct is to cry, then they'll cry. Nothing you can do to make them to stop. Maybe you could change their instinct by giving them the candy and stop crying. But they're entirely selfish. They want something that has to be their way. You know? that, that's the way children start off. And as they grow up, hopefully they mature and they become more of a human, more balanced in this relationship. But if we, are, if we don't tamper with it, if we don't influence it at all, the victor at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the process is always going to be the body. Why? Because the body is full position. The body is the first instinct, the knee-jerk reaction, the muscle memory, whatever you want to, whatever, uh, whatever metaphor you want to use, the body is in the lead, always. How do we change that? How do we make sure that our intellectual, our spiritual side has a fighting chance? You know what we do? We study Torah. When you study Torah, right, you are essentially trying to link your brain, like what you said, to God's brain. This is, God's, this is the way I think. Right? And that's obviously pure intelligence. You're latching your human intelligence into that. And you're trying to rework your mind and try to acclimate your mind and try to understand God's mind. What happens? you got to stress, you got to strain, you gotta, you got to sharpen, you got to hone your own mind. You're strengthening your soul. You're strengthening the side of this conflict that you want to win. Thus, even if it's not an instructive, and it's not, it's not about the mitzvah, it's about your life, you need a pencil sharpener for your mind. Nothing makes your mind as potent, as powerful, as strong as Torah study. Nothing. 
Uh, and right, because like thinking about it this way, you know, you think of uh, I have I could I, I could go to a divergent uh, tangent here and, and spend another half hour on this particular one, which I don't want to do, uh, but. You know, I used to make the argument that uh, right now in Israel there's a big, there's a big uh, political quagmire, really been festering for a while, with the yeshiva students in Israel. Because many yeshiva students uh, go to army, but some, most of them don't. Uh, so it, you know, there's this deep and very sensitive debate that has been brewing lately. Uh, between is it fair, is it just, should one mother have to worry about her kid in combat, uh, and should another mother not have to worry? Well, that's the you know that's a very you know it's a very important debate that uh, that exists in Israel, and I'm not taking a side on either you know taking a position on either side of the matter. But until now, it started in '48. Well, it didn't really start. Well, it 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 uh, it reached a crescendo a couple of years ago, really. Shivayon banetel means that uh, is it fair that some people or some young people they contribute to the country to the state to the you know to the medina and some don't that's 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 that that, that that's that's a very you know it's a very hard question to you know to try to wiggle out of you know it's it's, it's a very important question i wanted to say like my my philosophy was yeah, well i'm going to talk about this a little later but uh these yeshiva students, I spent time with yeshivas in Israel. And I've met people that whose minds were so sharp, so potent. Like these were intellectual titans. These were people that were on of the uh, of the one percent of one percent of intelligence. Now, of course, I would assume that most people were born with a certain edge. Uh, intellectually, you know, we're Jews with you know, brilliant people are a diamond, bless you, are a diamond dozen amongst the Jewish people. But you see people it's via the Torah study who spend years sharpening the mind, like being totally in, 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 entrenched in commuter dialogue, which is back and forth, and you know, but not only that, and they get into the commentaries and the, and, and, and they're getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and they strain their mind and sharpen it to such a degree that these are people that are literally these are geniuses that have the ability to analyze and assess critical information very, very, very fast. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, the, 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 well, there's no doubt that these students can contribute to the military. No, that wasn't a doubt. My my solution, this is my solution. Let me get to that solution. Uh, some of them maybe have good muscles also, so they could be in the front lines, right? Uh, my point is, is that I think that they could contribute. The argument that they're not contributing, I think that um, that would be quieted if there was some sort of program, which I which I which I dream of, which is probably never happen, where where now remember, like most you guys went to college, right? How many hours a week are you actually studying? Like straining your brain studying. Yeah, but but study, but I'm talking about straining your brain, like like actually squeezing out your brain to its fullest extent. Yeah. 
I would argue that most people have never done that in their lives. To actually, to actually think so hard that your brain hurts, like your head hurts, you have a headache. You think you need well, I, well, maybe a lot of people do. I say most people. I think that's a fair argument. I've never done that. Yeah. These people are doing it 12 hours a day. These are people that are honed their mind to such a degree that they could, you know, you know, they, they could. I, I, so I, my, so what's, what's my plan? To develop these, these truncated courses in physics, mathematics, and whatever. During the three weeks of the summer break that they have from Yeshiva and the four weeks that they have over Pesach, and use that to uh, to tackle humanity's biggest problems. Essentially, take you know take this potent group and have them just tackle some of the greatest mathematical problems, biological bio, issues of biology and and climate, and finance, and whatnot, and mathematics, let these people do it, because these are the people that are best suited to to do it. This is what they do. Like This is what they do. They just need to have the background. I don't know the background. But they're used to acquiring and incorporating enormous amounts of information, very dumb information, very fast. To do 12, 15-hour 15 15 hour days, bombard them, they just soak it all up, and booyah, you have now solutions for you. And they have con- contributions. That's my idea. You guys like it? Four hours. Thumbs up. Not four. Oh, not four hours. Uh, no, nine hours a day. Yeah, most of these things that you uh, suggest also require uh, people study from ten, twelve hours a day to solve problems in physics, okay. economics, and so on. Okay. I. Uh, well, what do they do after they get done? Yeah, but I think the interesting thing in uh, intellectual questions, whether it be this is a topic for and anyone studying for 12 hours archaeology would... Uh, well, not archaeology. Archeo- uh, no, archaeology is... is uh, not archaeology, but some other science. Yeah, maybe. No, I mean... You know, I, is I it mean, archaeology? Archaeology. Archaeology. No one stresses their brain with archaeology. This is all science. It is. Most of the time, they're just spending, chipping away at... No experimental. It's theoretical archaeology. Whatever. So... Well, Same mathematics or physics. That. <laughs> well, that's mine. Yeah, but uh, yeah, mathematics, for example. Yeah, math is awesome. I listen, and I, 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 I do agree. I, I, like I said, if someone spends their time um, playing chess, I think that would also help them be very, uh, be know. very, be be more intellectually uh, grounded. I think yeah, that's, that's a good you, argument. You mentioned a property which is very important. I think it's it's critical. Able to ingest a lot of information and put it together and quickly uh, realize a pattern with a big pictures and so on. Just and won't compare. give you that. Right, right. So, yes, you know, but it might help you a little bit. Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. My fault. Apologies. Somebody, uh, <laughs> 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 
Why was I getting this? No, no. Yeah, so, so, but, I, yeah. and you know what? You know, let me tell no, you something. Door, I mean, I, let me I, tell you something very, very cool. We have, I feel like science, just that word science. How, how does someone who has a thousand percent faith in God, not, not faith, belief, knowledge in God, what do they view science as? Depends on who you ask. I, I, I don't think we answer to 100%. Okay, so if you would ask me, what, what would I say? God's handiwork. God's handiwork. Right? That's very fair. Right? And thus, essentially, Torah and science are, are, are parallels that they're both things that we can encounter that originate by God. Originated by God. I would agree with you a thousand percent. In science, we so you look at, for example, the energy conserved. You don't ask why. And a lot of times, the Torah, it's 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 it is what it is. You're presented with data that is it. You know, you 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 know, and then you have to deconstruct it. Mm-hmm. If you know, and you have to you have you know, there's there's some room for. For, for for your own creativity uh, to shine. Well, my, my question is, and this is I mean, a good challenge. And, I, and Maimonides, by the way, which is a little bit later on, but Maimonides, when he, he says, how do you achieve love of God? Which to us, love of God is, is uh, it's got to be the hardest thing for us to imagine. Like, just God himself, just to conceptualize the idea is a hard thing to do. And love is an emotion, so how are we going to bring that down to an emotion? Maimonides addresses this question. He says, you know what you have to do? You, you cannot try to love God himself because you can't even think about God himself. That's a reality that's beyond the capacity of someone that's finite like us. However, the Torah and science, those are things that are kind of these intermediaries. Not, not intermediaries, that's, that's a bad word. But these are God's Channel. thoughts. These are God's handiworks that have this infinite quality of complexity that when we can, those things that we can delve, delve into will bring us to, to an emotional love of God. I agree with you a thousand percent. I think science is also, the problem is, is that is, you know, the, the, the scientists kind of hijack science as, as, you know. Well, I mean. I don't know if it's a problem if or not. Talk, if, you, if you talk about 50 years ago, then there was this big fight. But now most of, I mean. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no, but. National Academy of Science released a bunch of Apart, and they, they don't talk about the same things. So they're cool. Yes. That's what the national academy. I'm cool as well. I got like I said. So to me, science is God's handiwork. I think it's yeah. you know. No, but my question was, I mean, because I, I heard this a couple of times actually. So I mean, if you, if you understand Torah, you know, the logic that you can uh, develop in your brain is more than anything that you can do. Is, is there any source for this claim, or is just the what saying that if you study Torah, you become sharper than studying anything else? Or if you understand the logic, so it's, it's not even a question, right? But the, the question is, well, we can speculate and argue because yeah, this well, is the manual for the universe. Then it's but the source for it. Well, but this is remember this is this is this is going to be objective. I'm sorry, you mean subject? What an objective source? Well, my question subjective. is, I mean, it is, it's, yeah. Well, so this is what I found. Um, the source that I quoted from the 13th century, from Rabbi Aaron Levy, he says that this is the best the best method. Of sharpening the sharpening the mind, I, I would I think he would agree that there are other methods to sharpening the mind. 
uh, that would also be useful, but this is the best. That's a nice source. Uh, but I, I, I think, I, I, you know, my my exposure to Torah is, has been greater than I think science. I, I'm obviously biased in this, but it's, it's not exactly the same. I really don't. I, I really don't. My exposure um, has been beyond the other area, so, <laughs> you know. No, but I mean, if, if, if you really believe the Torah is the, the word of God, yeah. and I do believe that, uh, and God is way more infinite than anything that we can create, including science, so well, we can create science. That, huh? We can create science, we can observe science, we can understand we science. Can reveal science. Yeah, but not we can discover. Mm-hmm. What do you well, mean by we're working within with within a so fixed. So this is this is again a misunderstanding of what science is supposed to do. In science, we don't really discover how things work. We reveal it. We observe it. We observe it. No, no, we create we models. We, we, we create models of things. I mean, we can create an equation that describes something in the real world. That's not how the real world is. It's just an, a, an abstraction, a construction, a mathematical construction of how the thing works. We, we create models for the universe, and we never know if those models are. So it is really a, it's a creative thing trying to reproduce observables. That's what it is. And people tend to believe that if the a scientist says something and it's coming from me, then it must be true. But well, I think the, the scientists of Torah can be revealed the science of Torah. That means the science that is revealed. The Big Bang Theory. Well, and, and and well, and also the I'm saying Torah is undefeated. You know, it took it took three thousand years for science, quote unquote, to agree to the very first word of the Torah. You know that, right? Science, like I don't know if we discussed this. I, I don't know if we discussed it with you guys, but um, the first word of the Torah makes a bold claim that only recently, relatively. Yes, science has unanimously accepted. Uh, and before that, it was almost unanimously disregarded. Or, or right, it depends how far back you go. Uh, you know, but the Greeks disagreed with. They had the uh, you know the the uh, the turtles upon turtles upon turtles, right? The, uh, you know, the, the the idea of an infinite world universe was very popular yeah. for a very long time. You know, but Torah is undefeated. So, so uh, yeah, I, I, but I'm not going to disagree with you. I think that science, and then we'll get to this a little bit later on if we have, if we actually get to it. The idea, I love that move, of uh, the idea of 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 science also being a way to connect. But I think that if if uh, if um, if if we're going to use the just what we observe, I would say that the vast majority of scientists don't believe. Or at least a majority. Yeah, I mean, I would say yes, most. Uh, right. So, so clearly, studying science alone may sharpen your mind, but that's not going to. But, but the, the the difference is, is how is the science? There's, there's no signature, God's signature, so to speak, on the observable <laughs> signature, right? Or uh, uh, empirical signature. I mean, it, it's there, but it's not. But but you can't deny it. I mean, it's 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 this unbelievable thing that we as humans can develop the tools like math in order to describe the universe. I mean, yeah. that's a coincidence that most uh, scientists would not consider to be like an amazing thing. How is it possible that in evolution 
that's supposed to create a human population. But then, but then, but then there's this. How is it possible that those humans that evolved from something have the capacity of creating math to describe the universe in unquestionable dimensions? Well, that's of course an unanswered question. What, what, what? How would evolution produce? Human mind well, first, first is one, the, the, the whole issue of evolution, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. but the second one is why we could be just conscious people about ourselves and so on, but why is the universe based on things that can be described by mathematical methods, and we have the tools to describe it? Could be that way or not, but there's this very strange coincidence that you know, any reasonable scientist won't be able to answer. Either way, I, I, I think I, I agree to your point of the core point, and that is that science also can, can do that. And I think I think chess can, and other things can on, on a smaller scale. Okay, number five, which is 5A, B, and C. So what was Go four? ahead. To sharpen and hone your mind and take your brain and put it into the greatest pencil sharpener for the like brain. A lot of stuff. Right, 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 right. So... Yeah, exactly. These things. Um, yeah. There's a whole. There's a whole yeah. section there I skipped. Go ahead. I skipped an entire section, which would have taken us to like eleven. I don't think we got to seventeen, but either way. So you the one point of. Well, let's say it's a mitzvah to study Torah. There's instructions. There's reward. It sharpens a brain. Uh, let's go to number five to fend off the Yetzirah. Okay, I got four. I can share with you the list. Yeah, I could, the first four. Uh, right. it's a mitzvah. It, it's instruction. It's instructions. Uh, it to receive reward uh, and to, to uh, uh, and to develop sharpen your mind. Number four is to fend off the Yetzirah. Yetzirah, no five. Sorry, Yetzirah is the evil inclination. What is the evil inclination? The inclination is what we say uh, in the Torah. Well, not really. I would say number four is is more of a, a on a on a just life path kind of discussion. As opposed to number five is an actual tool or tactic or strategy that you use in your in your day to day interactions with your human beings. So this evil inclination, what, what do we know about it? Well, no. Let's just take the word evil inclination. What do we know about it? It's evil, right? <laughs> That's the word evil in its name, or bad, right? <laughs> of course, it's right? Mm-hmm. What else do we know about it? It's, it's an inclination. It inclines you to do some bad stuff. Vayar Elohim et kol ma'asha vihine tov ma'od. The verse in Genesis, the Almighty sees everything that he did, and behold, it is exceedingly good. Not just good, it's super good. Says the Midrash, Tov, when it says that it's good, that is a reference to the good inclination. Yetzer Tov. When it says exceedingly good, Tov Me'od, Ze Yetzer Ra. This is the Yetzer Ra. This is the evil inclination. Thus, what we view as evil, according to Jewish literature, is exceedingly good. Because if we did not have this force within us, our lives would be meaningless. If you do not have a resistance 
to good. Well, in doing good is no big deal. Right? That's not something which is noteworthy. If you don't have an attraction to doing bad, well, then abstaining from bad is also meaningless. It's not, it's not noteworthy at all. Thus, this force, this power, this energy is what creates meaning in the world. Because now that we are driven towards what our body wants, right, what we would call bad, well, we have the opportunity to become great or to become good. Because now we could resist that. We could say, no, I'm not doing what's bad and say, I'm going to do what's good even though it's not, uh, I'm being pulled away from it. Thus, it's exceedingly good because we have no, life would be meaningless otherwise. But our and thus we can say that our life and the meaning that we're going to have in our life is going to be in this conflict that we're going to have with the Yetzirah, with the evil inclination. So, essentially, we could say that our life and the meaning of our life is going to be measured by the degree of success that we're going to have with this combat. Thus, it's very important for us to be successful. What do we do? You know, we have urges, we have these feelings, it's this chemical. We have chemical desires and passions and, and wants and whims, and we, it, it's, it's there. We didn't cause it. We, we didn't, did someone choose to download the evil inclination? Did we do that? No, we were born like that. We didn't do it. Right? How are we going to overcome it? We need as many ideas and strategies and tactics as possible. So we find in the Talmud like this. Barati Yetzahara, Barati Torah Kavli. This is the book of Kedushin. God says, I created the Torah, I, I created the Yetzirah, I created the Torah as an antidote. The Torah is the antidote, says the Torah. When someone has the Torah, they are protected. It's like they have the vaccine. Now, what does that mean? If you have the vaccine, could you encounter, let, you know, let's say you have the uh, mumps, measles, and rubella vaccine. Can you go give a hug to your friend who has mumps? Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, you're vaccinated, right? You're vaccinated, right? But the Torah is both the vaccine and the antidote because one is before and after the other. So that's why it's 5A, 5B, maybe even 5C. <laughs> the Torah is the antidote. How that works is an interesting question. There's this, you know, that's, that, that, that's all Thomas says, that Torah is the antidote. How, well, how does that work? Or the, the word Torah, what does the word Tavlin mean in Hebrew? Oh, it means a spice. The word tavlin, so it's translated as an antidote, but it also can mean a spice. What, what's the difference between an antidote and a spice? What does a spice do? It takes something and changes it, right? It spices it, right? It's, it's a soup, it's water, and now you put in the soup mix, and now it's, it's water. It's still water, but now it's water with a flavor. So it changes what something is essentially. But it doesn't it doesn't alter it, it doesn't move it, doesn't it doesn't, doesn't banish it, 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 it sweetens it or it spices it, it makes it palatable. Thus, these are these are these are different elements of the same idea. We could say that the Torah really in our quest to conquer and suppress and vanquish and, and defeat our Yetzirah, the Torah is gonna help us because it's going to flavor the Yetzirah. Now what does that mean? eliminate it, it's going to flavor it. 
how do you flavor the Yetzirah? We find again the Talmud, back to the Talmud. Bar im padra b'chamenu v'lzeh, mashcheu l'bet ha-medrash. Remember that? Also, it's the same, it's the same page as Kedushin Dab Lamed Amud Bet. Im padra b'chamenu v'lzeh, if this despicable one attacks you, we're talking about the Yetzirah, drag him to the house of study. Let's see a question now. I mentioned the crime factor earlier. You meet someone, someone comes up to you with a gun drop. God forbid. God forbid. And is trying to rob you or to mug you or to whatever. What, what is your ideal course of action? Like, what's the ideal result? You know, the ideal result is... The ideal result is de-escalate but how you know you want to be somewhere away from the threat? Like you, you would want to if you could escape without shooting the guy or without being hurt, you would want to escape, right? Okay, but there's no one else around. For argument's sake, right? You have this encounter with the Yetzirah. If this Yetzirah attacks you, what does it says? Drag him to the house of study. Doesn't say abandon him in the alley and run by yourself to the house of study. It says drag him to the house of study. What essentially it's saying is you take the Yetzirah and you bring him with you to the house of study. That's what it says. Mashchehu. How do you translate Mashchehu? We'll have the verification in Hebrew. What is it? How do you translate? Pull him with you. What it's telling you is that there's this element of the Torah being a way to channel the efforts and the energy of the Yetzirah. And how does that work? So the Zohar, we know, the Zohar tells us that uh, that if if not ilule Yitzra de Araya. There would be no chedvasa deshmaitza, which is Aramaic for if not for the yetzera, the inclination for promiscuity, there would be no, no, not procreation. There would be no uh, excitement to tell us Thus, what it's essentially telling us is that the same passion that we have that could be directed towards sin, when channeled to Torah study. Spice it up. It's a spice that enhances our Torah. But the Torah is a kosher outlet for a non-kosher ingredient. That's one idea. Thus, we could say, and that's what you drag him with you. Don't let, don't let him go because you need him. Drag him with you to the Beit Midrash and use that to improve your Torah study. That's, that's the spice. Then, I would say there's the uh, there's the antidote or the vaccine, uh, and we know we have three things that uphold the world. What are the three things? Al shloshat v'rim, al Torah omed, the haolam omed. The three things uphold the world. Al Torah, three things uphold the world: Torah, service of God, and and chesed towards. Now, there are also three cardinal sins. <clears throat> 
that you have to give up your life for. What are they? Adultery, right? murder, and idolatry. Thus, and, and the sources make it very clear that these three are parallel to each other. Kindness needs to give. What's the most you can take from somebody? Thus, murder is one extent, uh, the other opposite of the spectrum of kindness. Worshipping God, what's the opposite of that? Well, worshipping idolatry. And what's the, the, the opposite of Torah study? Adultery. What do they do with each other? What should they possibly do with each other? How could they be opposites? And then we find, in the end of Hilchot Isurei Bi'ah, which is the laws of prohibited uh, um, relationships, relations, in chapter 21, the Ram says, Ein machsheves arayos, Ella belev haponu Speaking in Hebrew, because I know we have a Hebrew speaker. There's no thought of, of, of promiscuity or licentiousness uh, only in a heart devoid of wisdom. Thus, what it's telling us is that at the core of sin is an occupation of, a certain, of certain thoughts in your mind. And the Torah at its core is occupation of Torah thoughts in your mind. Thus, your mind is going to be full of thoughts. The question is what? Is it the Torah? Or is it going to be what the Yetzirah is? So if you fill it with Torah, well then it's the antidote. It's the vaccine. Why is it the vaccine? Because you, there's no thoughts about it. You could go and hug a guy with the mumps, measles, and rubella, right? I wouldn't suggest doing that in, in, the, in the example metaphor. Uh, but but, uh, but it, would, uh, it would essentially preclude someone from having that kind of even challenge. It, 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 it overcomes that. In fact, uh, the Talmud gives a, a mashal, uh, a story, an example, parable says that you have a father who takes his son and beats him up really bad. And then he has a big bruise. And then the father comes and puts a bandage with some ointment on the bruise. And the father tells the son, as long as you leave the ointment on, the bandage on, you're free to do whatever you want. Eat foods that are dangerous for this illness. Take hot showers, cold showers, whatever you want. You won't be damaged as long as you have this patch on. You take it off, you're going to sin right away. So too, the Almighty said to the Jewish people, I, I gave you, I beat you up. Why? Because I gave you this, this, this Yetzirah, this evil inclination. You have a bruise. But I gave you the Torah. The Torah is the antidote. You wear the Torah, you're vaccinated from it. Why? Because if you actually take the Torah to its fullest extent, if you occupy your mind with nothing but Torah, there's no room for for those thoughts to enter your mind, and thus thus you'll be saved from that as well. And additionally, we have another statement, which is along these lines. Yafe Torah in Derecheretz, she yediyachne meshnachat avon. Good to have Torah with the way of the world, which means to have a regular job, right? You're, 
have both of them because if you toil with both of them, you're going to forget sin. You're going to forget about sin. Thus, the same idea where when the Torah is in your mind, you forget about sin. Either way, this is five A and B and C, whatever. Uh, uh, that is that the Torah is the antidote or the spice for uh, for overcoming the Yetzirah. Ready for six? Can we go to the more exciting ones, <clears throat> like the more controversial ones at the end? Anything? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm planning on making it a 25. I have some more. There's more out there for sure. <laughs> we started off with kind of very par vanilla ones. I'm going to get into a little more controversial ones. Uh, and we had... We had... Uh, it's a mitzvah. It's an instruction. It's a reward. It sharpens your mind. Uh, it's... Uh, and now we just talked about how it's the number one tool in multiple variations uh, of overcoming our Yetzirah, which is this exceedingly good thing that we have, but could influence us and pull us down. Okay, let's let's go to number nine here. Just jumping a little ahead. Good, good time. To save the world from utter destruction. What this means is that if there were to be a single second, this is evident in many, many, many sources, if there's a single second where there's no one studying Torah in the entire world, the world would revert back to... Yes, exactly. It would, just, it would just... It would be the end. All of us would be toast. We'd all be dead. We'd all be forgotten. We'd all be... That's it. We'd all be done. In fact, in the great Velazhin Yeshiva... Mother of all yeshivas, they had a 24-hour schedule. 24-7, there was always someone studying Torah. Because you know what? If there's no one studying Torah, potentially the world could just go. We study Torah, we're saving the world. That's, in, in, in essence, we are doing our little bit of helping save the world studying Torah. You know, I know that uh, there's great stories of some of the uh, great uh, Jewish leaders of the past you know, several hundred years that made it their business right after Yom Kippur to spend time studying Torah. Every after Yom Kippur, right after Yom Kippur finishes, two hours Torah study. Why? Because out of the entire year, right, out of the entire year, this is the time where the world is, is most vulnerable. Why? Because everyone's, all the people that are studying Torah, those are the people that are also eating as well. Right? Just, time zone. Okay, well, you want to rely on, is that what you want to rely on? <laughs> no, the 24-7 thing is good. So we have a verse. This is a verse in the Torah. If not for my covenant of day and night, which is Vedis Vayom study Torah day and night, I would, the laws of, of, of the world would, would cease to exist. Well, that's, 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 that's one of the ideas of a Torah. Uh, I don't know. You can ask them. Well, just because it's the most vulnerable time of the year, it's not the most vulnerable time of the year. 
Sorry to say that again. Since it was Lucas Mania, everybody started doing yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. The weakest link became stronger. Yeah. We have also back on Shabbos, 88A, where it talks about uh, where it talks about the uh, um, uh, the acceptance of the Torah. It says very clearly, it says that God said to the people, make a pact with them. If you accept the Torah, great. If not, I'm going to destroy them all. Uh, additionally, I know we, we, in, in 2006, during the Lebanon War, it brought us with you. How was that? The Lebanon War in 2006, which is nine years, uh, uh, I guess, from uh, maybe August or July of this year, there was a 34-day war. I'm sure you guys remember. 34-day war in Lebanon when the uh, Hezbollah was sending these massive rockets, enormous rockets, into Israel. And especially northern Israel was bombarded. There's a million refugees, basically. Huh? Yeah. Well, the impact was very minimal. Huh? They hit. They didn't. Most people. Most. Most of the. Yeah. Most people evacuated. Either way, so that came right at the end of the summer schedule, the summer semester in the yeshiva. I was in yeshiva in Israel at the time, and we. What? What do you do? Like you're in yeshiva, so most people, when you think of what you're doing, well, you're studying Torah. Ah, uh, but. With this knowledge, what we're also doing is we're saving the world. We are doing more than anything that you know, more than anyone else, uh, to contribute towards saving the world, and most certainly the Jewish people. So, and now in the middle of the war, you have the, you have the, um, you have uh, you have the semester ending, and everyone's going to go on vacations, and everyone's going to leave the yeshiva. It's like imagine you have. A battlefront where the people say, "Hey, it's my shift is over." Sorry, <laughs> you know we're we're in the middle of a very strategic battle. But sorry, it's 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 you know it's, 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 it's been four hours since I had my last break. I'm out. Um, I'm checking out. The whole place checks out. Oh, you start in Yom Kippur, right? What is Yom Kippur? The war of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Yeah, that's <laughs> there's an imminent. Uh, yeah, but so we had in 2006. The big I was in, I was in the Miri Shiva, the biggest Shiva in the world. And they say we're not, we're not, we're canceling cancel vacation. Vacation's over. Not only that, not only that, uh, there was a uh, the Rosh Hashiva gave a, 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 a impassioned speech where he mentioned that what saves the world more, or nothing, no Torah saves the world more than the Torah where there's a Torah insight. It's as if there's new Torah material that's developed. The difference is, I want everyone, everyone in Yeshiva, to write a, a, a treatise, a Torah treatise, which is not an easy thing to do at all. So I remember we all wrote, not all of us, of course, there was thousands and thousands of students, but I remember we walked through the office and there's piles like that of, of just the, the Torah no, novelle of, of the, the Chidushe Torah of the students. You know? But that's the idea. They, is the Torah study is saving the world. And by the way, Going back to the argument that we made earlier, or that we the, going back to the political issue in Israel of 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 the uh, of the army and the yeshiva students, one of the, the this I think if you if you if we understand this idea, we really I mean, this is an, this is an idea that's very important for the dialogue um, uh, surrounding that uh, that issue. Why? Because according to the, you know. The yeshiva students, who, they, they believe that they're doing more for the safety and security of Israel, studying the book of Kiddushin in some Bet Midrash, in some house of study, 
than some of the front lines. That's a really uh, held, strongly held belief by a lot of people. And it's based upon uh, ideas that are in the Torah itself. It says these, it says these things. Yeah, and that's what intermediates more of the secular. Right. It, okay, but, 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 but if you're going to have to bridge this gap, you're going to have to understand where everyone's yeah, coming from. Yeah, both sides. I mean, to solve it, you have to solve it. Yeah, and and I, I don't think it's an easy thing to, I'm not trying to adjudicate this, uh, this, this dilemma. But if you want to understand what the positions are on both sides of the issue, it's very important to realize that on one side there's the argument that, whether you agree with it or not, that's, there's, there is an argument that studying Torah in, in some basement is doing more for Israel's security than fighting hand-to-hand combat in the days of your life. Whether you agree with that or not, that's an argument. We'll do, uh, do so. We'll just do a couple more, guys. We're, we're, we're uh, nine fifty-eight. Let me let me quickly run through all of them. Just some of the, just the just the taglines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, okay. we could do part two. We could do part two. Uh, let me just run through them uh, to achieve unbiased intelligence, to achieve a Hashem Hashem love of God, to fix your character, uh, save a world dimension, to create worlds. Ooh, that's a cool one. To be close to the Almighty. You mentioned to preserve the relationship that we have with the Almighty to live without that, you're, there's, without that there's no life. It's our food for Olam Abba. It's what we eat in Olam Abba, and we to achieve dominion over uh, over nature. Like Rabbi Yochanan, when he was studying Torah, what happened with the birds? <laughs> and what happened with the uh, you know we know the Torah was given, and the Torah essentially, if the Torah is the blueprint for humanity, thus if someone has the Torah, then they actually have the keys. To the laws of physics, so they could they could really tamper with it. So all these all these or not tamper with it, they could tamper, disable, destroy it. <laughs> uh, so you have all these stories in the Talmud where the great rabbis, the great rabbis are are literally changing the rules of of, of uh, the rules of nature. And how do they do that? And we have the rabbis splitting the sea, and rabbis reviving dead. And what's the deal? Is this just all sorcery? No, it's because they had a Torah to such a degree that they essentially had. They were a step earlier than the laws of physics. And therefore, they can manipulate them, as crazy as that sounds. Either way, I think that this should be sufficient for us to kind of at least get, a, 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 you know, get our feet wet with kind of appreciating the scope of, 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 of what, what, you know, what, what, what do we mean by Torah and what, what happened on this day and what we're celebrating and why the Jewish people have been so dedicated Towards towards the study and the perpetuation of this, uh, of, of, of you know this wisdom for so long, and I, I think there's more. Yeah, there's more where that came from. I think. I think you did a good job actually putting together all these uh, I mean, reasons why people study Torah. Thank you. Yeah, you I would like to the next one, create worlds. Create worlds. Oh yeah. Yitzirat <laughs> olamot. Yitzirat olamot. So that's that, guys. Everyone have a happy holiday. Uh, we're you. having or hosting an all you can learn on Saturday night. Okay. Everyone's welcome to eat. <laughs> and, and there's going to be a, <laughs> going to be a two, 2 a.m. barbecue. So I don't know. You didn't do the Mar- dairy thing. Mar- no dairy for me. 